scary girl. Hey, everybody. Hi, everyone. I'm Stephanie. And I'm Sarah. And this is Dead Dime Stories. Episode 58. Yeah, it is. Got them. Yeah. yeah, last week we had Jared on. That was exciting. We did. Thank you for coming on, Jared. Did you guys like that? I hope so. Did I had you a like lot it? of fun. I, he's a cool kid. We like Jared. We do. He's, he's a good. cool kid. He's a good guy. Is he a kid? Nah. I mean, yes. kid in the, yeah, like, relative term, not in the legal. And, like, he's a baby he's goat an term. adult. Sure. <laughs> he's a kid. He's, he's a baby goat. He's a baby goat. goat. Um, I always <laughs> love that part in uh, the Disney Hunchback where um, Esmeralda and Phoebus are, like, fighting, and um, Jolly, the goat, runs up and, like, hits him, and he's like, I didn't know you had a kid. dump dum 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 Yeah. Um, have you listened at all to the Offices and Bosses episodes that have been released for Magic I think Tavern? I listened to one of them. Oh, okay. Well, they're the latest John Bastion. one. John Bastion. John Sebastian? John Bastion. John Bastion. Um, there was, in this last episode, they were talking about getting nuts. And I guess I never realized the joke they were making when they Usador was like, that's Chunt. And Chunt would be like, that's Usador. Is that they were pointing at each other. But it didn't read because it was through audio. So, like, if we were like, that's Stephanie. (laughs) We don't even point, but because we know. But 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 the thing is, is we would be pointing, but people on the audio wouldn't hear it. And they wouldn't know which one was which from looking at the pictures, right? Without (laughs) us being like, in the picture, Stephanie left. Stephanie. Sure. Anyways, that was my little tangent on that. <laughs> you got anything? Oh, podcast. I've just been listening. Uh, P-cast. I'm sorry. P-cast, as, as what Jared, Jared told us. us. That's what the kids call it nowadays. Jared said We're the kids call it a P-cast. Um, Sounds like pecan, but that is not the way you I say it. I feel like pecan. I haven't been listening to a lot of podcasts lately. I've been listening to a lot of NPR. And then when I do listen to podcasts, it's something that I didn't get to finish on NPR earlier. <laughs> so I'll be like, that was a really interesting episode of Fresh Air. Like, Hey, Google, play fresh air because we have little Google homes. Mm -hmm. But yeah, there was like a like I've never cared for Howard Stern, but he was on an episode of Fresh Air lately recently where I was like, wow, that was just a really good episode of Fresh Air. It was a great interview. Terry Mm -hmm. Gross is a very good interviewer. She had Lizzo on. There was an episode recently where the first half was John Waters and the second half was Lizzo. And I was like, was this episode made for for me? Right. Right. (laughs) Because I love both of those people. Um, and I'm currently reading John Waters' uh, newest book called Mr. Know-It-All about being what he calls a, quote, filth elder. All right. That's, okay. Yeah. Okay. I like John Waters. I've yeah. always tried to live my life as a real-life John Waters heroine, like a <laughs> like a divine or a Tracy Turnblad, if you will. All right. I got it. <laughs> I think I pick up what you're putting down. I love Yeah, I'm into it. Well, what else is going on? You got any you got any creative projects? No, not yet, but potentially there's something on the horizon. You're auditioning for something coming up. We'll hear more later. Yeah, I'm auditioning for something coming up. All right, great. <laughs> wink, wink, nudge, nudge, say no more. Uh, <laughs> we heard about your thing coming up last week. Yes. Another shout I still out? don't have a location yet because right. we're only we're recording this in the same day. But yes, July 30th. Bad sex and other problematic analogies. It's going to be in Bushwick in Brooklyn, New York. So nice. uh, if you can come out to a show at a 10 o'clock p.m. on a Tuesday in Bushwick, uh, come do it. You're going to come see my one-woman show, Bad Sex and Other Problematic Analogies. It's a good time. Bam. All right. Anything else? I've got my YouTube videos. I've been doing those. Oh, that's right. If you want to look at those, those are cute. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, I've been releasing a YouTube video every Tuesday. Um, my channel is just my name, Stephanie C. Kernison, K-E-R-N-I-S-A-N. I like to call it Stephanie Does Stuff. All right. Um, Stephanie does stuff. I've done some makeup tutorials. I talked about my tongue split. You did skincare routine. I did a skincare one yes. recently. Um, so, yeah, I've been putting those out every Tuesday. If you're interested, check that shit out. Damn. Just a little, you know, me trying to keep doing stuff, and it's something I could do on my own. So Yay. It's exciting. Thanks. It's fun. Yeah. I have a good time. Yeah. Well, Stephanie. Y'all, Y'all ready, ready to talk, talk about, about some ghosts? ghosts? Are you talking about a ghost? No, but kind of close okay. in a sense. Today, I'm going to talk about something that's known as the Kelly Hopkinsville encounter. Okay. You might have heard of it as I talk about it. I like this story. I've been sitting on it for a little while, and I'll just go ahead and give a disclaimer. There are a lot of little intricate details that I could get into with this story, and I'm not going to. I'm giving you just the big overview because I think the story by itself is funny. I don't really want to get into other details. But the reason I like this story is because I like to call it the attack of the Mogwais. And you're going to see why when I show you pictures. But I said it was an encounter, which means we're dealing with some aliens. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So we're going back to Kentucky in 1955. And there's an alien encounter. Of course. So, on August 21st, you had five adults and seven children gathered at this farmstead outside of Hopkinsville, Kentucky. And it's the one main family. And then, if I'm not mistaken, it is the main matriarch's other like older grown adult son and his family have come to join them for like dinner. Um, the grown adult son, he goes by the name nickname of Lucky. Um, he travels and works with like carnivals. So they're traveling through him and his wife go to see his mom and his half siblings and other relatives. And they're all hanging out at the farmstead. Having a good time. They have some dinner. They go to play a game of cards. And one of the friends who came with Lucky named Billy Ray He's like, I got to get some water. I'm going to go run out to the well real quick. And it's like seven o'clock at night. And he goes out to the well in the woods. And as he's getting water from the well, he looks up and he sees something really weird, something that he describes as being a silver saucer disc-like object flying through the sky with like rainbow lights around it. So he goes back in the house and he's like, guys... You'll never guess what I just fucking saw. This shit was weird as hell. He was apparently known for like pulling jokes on his friends and family. And so he came in and said, I saw a flying saucer in the sky. And they were like, we're not falling for that one, bud. So no one was into it at first. But he's like, no, really? Like, I swear to God, I saw this weird thing. Like someone come out there with me. Let's go look at it. And so Billy Ray got lucky to go out with him to go check out whatever he saw, this saucer thing. So they go outside. They've got their guns. And from what I could read, at that point, they saw a weird light off in the distance. And then they saw this creature that they described as being silver, three feet tall, big eyes, short legs, Long arms and really big ears 
And the thing that I liked in the first description is they described them as having their arms just like up. <laughs> like, like, hallelujah. Like, we're on a roller coaster, like up. Hey. Hey. And they like come up. And so Lucky and Billy Ray shoot at these creatures and they're like, what the fuck? And they run back into the house and they get back in the house and like, guys, I swear to God, we saw these creatures. This was really weird. And at that point, the matriarch of the house is like, you boys need to quit fucking around. We got children here. I need you to get your shit together. There's nothing out there. And the guys are like, no, we promise. We promise there's something out there. And so one of them takes position at the front door and the other one takes position at the back door. And matriarch and the rest of the people with the kids are all like in the middle. And she's like, this is ridiculous. And they each have a position at each door. And they're like, no, I promise there is something out there. And at that point, it's disputed on how many, but these little silver, they called them, they ended up calling them goblins. These little silver goblins sort of swarmed the house. And so they saw them at first, they saw them through the front door. And so they shot through the screen door to try to hit it. And they said they hit the creature, but it didn't seem to phase the creature. It just like got hit. It like tuck and rolled and like ran <laughs> off. And then they said they would see them like pop up in the windows. I imagine almost like an old school, like carnival. <laughs> like they're like popping up in the windows. I don't like And they're that. like shooting them. So they're shooting them through the windows and like trying to get them. And so you've got the mom and the kids all huddled in the middle. You've got the men outside or not outside, but on the perimeter with the shotgun shooting at these little silver goblin creatures. And let me just show you a picture of how they're, you know, depicted. This is the way the family drew them. And you'll see why I say it's the attack of the Mogwais. Because they look like gremlins. They look like little Snoopies. Yeah. I can and see that. They have these, like, big old ears and big eyes, yep. big head, little body, like, jacked shoulders. <laughs> and they're three feet tall. <laughs> and they say they can't tell whether there's four or 15 of them attacking oh the God. house because they would just move so quickly yeah. and they'd pop up in a window and they disappear and they pop up in a window and they disappear. And at one point in a lull in the attack or whatever you want to call it, Billy Ray goes to step outside on the porch and he steps out to look out and he says he like felt like a claw come down and like touch his head and play with his hair and it says that his wife saw like silver claws come and touch his hair and she was like Billy Ray no and like grabbed him and pulled him inside and was like no you get the fuck out of there Billy Ray no <laughs> Billy Ray no come inside so all in all they were shooting at fighting off fending off these little silver mogwai goblins for about four hours, there's 11 people in this house. Four hours. And finally, at one point, the matriarch, the mother, she was like, I can't take it anymore. We we need to go to the police. Like, she said, they're not, like, coming in the house. They're not trying to attack us. They're staying on the outside. We need to get out of here and, like, go get help. And so all 11 of them piled into, like, three trucks at midnight and barreled down to the police station and went and told the cops. And they were like, we have these little silver goblins attacking our okay. house. We need help. And they got the police, followed them back to the house. 
And the police got there and the police are like, yeah, we see the the shattered windows. We see the shell casings on the ground. Like, obviously, there was they were shooting here. at something, but there's nothing else here. And the police, like, went around and the police, like, separated the family and they were asking them questions. But all of their stories were the same. Were the same. And they, like, drew the pictures of these little guys. And these are all, like, different, like, drawings that they drew, did. Yeah. And they all look very similar. And so the police were like, we didn't really know. They hung out for an hour or so. And then the police were like, you guys good? We're going to go. I mean, like, they're we gone now. Uh, they're not coming back. There's nothing we can do. So the police left. The family stayed there for a little while. And then allegedly around like, I don't know, four or five in the morning, they left and they left the property. And the woman who owned the property ended up moving further into town and was like, I'm not even I I don't want to be in the woods anymore. Yeah. I don't want to be in the woods at all. Yeah. Fuck that. And so they're the only ones like that family are the only ones who experienced like these entities. However, they say at the farm over, like the next farm over, they reported around, you know, seven, between seven and midnight, seeing like flashing lights in the sky yeah, and seeing like lights. And they just thought it was, it was the Sutton family out looking for, I'm trying to remember they said, like looking for their livestock or some sort of livestock that was lost. And that's what the lights and that's what the gunfire was. And so this other family was like, we're not going to get our nose into it. Like, that's not our business. Uh, we don't really know. But they saw these weird lights, too. Um, and that was it. And like five minutes, uh, five minutes, five years sort of after the whole case happened and like they went to the cops. It was in the news reports of these little silver goblin men. About five years later, like more people started doing research and there were a few theories that came up where they're like, this might have been what it was. It might have been like a delusion of the whole family. It might have been like one person's delusion then infecting everyone and them all kind of seeing it. But my favorite theory that made me think of you is they said that they might have just been seeing, like, some great horned owls. I knew you were going to fucking say (laughs) owls. They were seeing owls. They were seeing just some owls popping up (laughs) in their windows. So it could be the owl theory. Yeah, it's always the fucking owls. And people are just like, oh, they're so wise and majestic. And I'm like, they're committed. They're murders. fucking goblins. They're goblins. And you're not even suspecting them. They're popping up in your windows. Hide your kids. Hide your wives. Hide your yeah, wives. I was, I was, I was going to say that. They're popping up in all your windows. Yeah. Reaching down from your gutters to tangle your hair. Yeah. Yep. Um, or dash you in the back of the head and make you fall down the stairs. That too. Make your husband yes and his way into prison. <laughs> Is she breathing? Yes. yes. And, and she's, she's covered blood. in blood. <laughs> um, so that's the really quick and dirty, not super detailed story of the Kelly Hopkinsville case. And the reason I like it a lot, because I'll be honest, I'm not super into alien stories. They don't really do anything for me. Um, but these things look like my dog. And I think it's so funny to imagine. Could you imagine being in a house and like Snoopy's just popping up? <laughs> What does that noise Sawyer makes him do? The that poor dog. There you go. And you shoot him and he doesn't, he just tucks and rolls. Oh, no. oh Snoops. So Snoopy that's the Snoopy two shits. He takes two shits and he gives none. But he'll scream at your door and scare you. 
Apparently. Bow, wow, wow. And then shit. Twice. Shit twice while he's there. While he's there. Uh, so it's a Kelly Hopkinsville case in 1955 in Kentucky. Go Google image search if you want to see the little green, or not green, they're silver, little silver goblins. Uh, but also know that they look like my dog. That's so cool. there you go. That's my, that's my cute little alien story. Um, what I you guess, got? Well, I was going to say before we move on, oh. I think we have a promo this week, right? We do. You're right. We're taking it back to our friends. Two scared siblings. Two scared siblings. I really like Ren. I think I just like the way he says his name. I'm Ren. I know. Just, it makes me really happy. <laughs> it's because he sounds so happy. Right. They're adorable. Take a listen. Yeah. Here we go. Hello. Hello. We're two scared siblings. I'm Andrea. I'm Ren. And we talk about all horror things. So. Yeah, I said that really salesman corny. <laughs> yeah. I'm Ren. And yeah. buy this car. Why, hello there, <laughs> folks. <laughs> Come check out um, our horror podcast. And there's a lot of this crap, too. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of this crap. We do this. But everything horror. So true crime, ghost stories. Like a lot of ghost stories. Conspiracies, I don't know, gross diseases. Everything. All, like actual fictional stories and like media critiques in the horror genre. Anything that's Everything horrible. Horror. So if you like horrible yep. shit, come listen to us. Yeah, and you can email us too. We do audience participation at twoscaredsiblings at gmail.com. So like you might be featured on an episode. So yeah, all things yeah. horror. Check us out. Bye. We love you. Bye. Mwah. Scared siblings. There it is. Scared siblings. It Thanks, is. guys. Out, yeah. yeah, definitely go give them a listen. They're super worth your time. What are you talking about, Stephanie? What are you talking about? You said you had two baby I do. stories? Uh, I have two shorter true crime stories. And I could probably devote a full episode to either one of them. One of them, I just... I I was like, I guess I'll talk about this. And one of them I was like, I had never heard about, so I was more intrigued by that one. So the All first right. one I had already heard of, so I wasn't that excited about. Okay. So Val was like, it's still June. Uh, you should keep talking about, you talked about the Babadook, keep talking about uh, gay serial killers. Oh. And I was like, well, I already did Jeffrey Dahmer. And um, then I came, I was like, well, I could talk about the party monster. And Val was like, what about the party <gasps> monster? Right. And I was like, well, he's not a serial killer. It was just one a really weird, crazy, crazy murder. Story. Right. So I was going to talk about Michael Alec, uh, and that was going to be my shorter one. But I, because I, like I said, I already knew about Michael Alec. Mm-hmm. I was very, I was not very, but I was pretty familiar with that case. So if you don't know, Michael Alec was one of, like, one of the first club kids. Like, he was the founder of the, um, of the club kids who everybody, I feel like, knows more about now because of Drag Race and they talk about the club kids on there. But it was like a specific sect of, like, drag where they were just super into, like, being weird. Um, um, they talk about Lee Bowery, like, on Drag Race a lot. But it's not about, like, female performance. It's all about fucking with gender and being a piece of art and, you know, being weird. And that was the Club Kids. So there's this guy, Michael Alec. He's one of the first ones. And, you know, part of being a Club Kid is being on drugs all the time. Of course. And they actually made, so James St. James, who was another club kid, wrote a book about it. Uh, and then it became a movie. And in the movie, which was called Party Monster, because that wasn't originally the name of the book. In the movie, Michael Alec was played by Macaulay Culkin and James St. James was played by uh, Seth, Seth Green, Green, who wasn't 
Uh, James St. James isn't really involved in the crime. He just know, knew all the people because they were all club kids. Like, they all hung out together. So he wrote a book about it later, but he wasn't, like, involved in any way. He just was like, here's this crazy murder that happened between two of my friends. Yeah. Um. So, so Michael Alec was a former club promoter and a musician, and he served, uh, so he's still alive and he's out of prison now, and he served uh, just about 17 years in prison for manslaughter. And uh, in the 80s and 90s, he was one of the founders of the Club Kids, which we've talked about. In March 1996, Alec and his roommate, Robert D. Freeze, in quotations, Riggs, killed a fellow Club Kid, Andre Angel, also in quotations, Melendez, in a confrontation over a delinquent drug debt. And even though it happened in March 1996... They really didn't pers- – like, the police didn't really pursue Alec until over a year later in October of 97. Now, again, he wasn't a serial killer, so it's not like he was killing all these people. Yeah. But he was – Pretty much bragging about having killed Angel Melendez. Like, he was very, he would tell anybody, quote, there's a thing, like, in quotes, where it's like, he would tell anybody who would listen. Wow. About how it, how it went down. So, um, he's originally from Indiana and he, like a lot of kids did in the eighties, like moved to New York so that he could, originally it was to go to school, but he, uh, dropped out of school so that he could, um, work at the Danceria, which was a club or Danceria. There's a T in there as a bus boy. <laughs> and while he was working there, he studied the nightclub business and that's when he became a party promoter. So he was working pretty exclusively for, um, Peter Gation, who owned the Limelight, which was a famous club, but he owned a bunch of clubs. And Michael Alec worked as a promoter for all of these clubs. And he knew Angel Melendez because Angel sold drugs at most of these clubs. And um, that was the thing that was like kind of known, which is a part of it's going to come into play later where we talk about uh, Michael Alec's like time and why he was given less time because of this other stuff. So he's working in New York. He's a dancer. He's a club promoter. He's, you know, joining the club kids. They're all like super flamboyant and they dress all crazy. And, um, they were really into hanging out with James St. James, uh, who later described the club kids as part drag, part clown, part infantilism. <laughs> So they were also known for their frequent use of ketamine, also known as Special K, mm-hmm. um, ecstasy, rohypnol, which is later used as like the roofie, it's like a party drug, heroin, cocaine. Alex Club Kids included, among others, Ernie Glam, Gitsy, Genitalia, <laughs> Genitalia, superstar DJ Kiyoki, Amanda Lepore, who is like a... Another, I was like, I know who she is. Charlie Dash, Prestano, Richie Rich, Robert Freeze Riggs, RuPaul, who people know, and Walt Paper. Walt Paper. <laughs> the club kids' outrageousness became a source of interest for the media, and articles about them appeared in such media outlets as Newsweek, People, and Time. They also appeared on Donahue, Geraldo, The Joan Rivers Show. Just talking about being weird, and that's how they want to look like, and that's how they want to present themselves, and whatever. So his parties, Alex's parties, were known for their, like, bad behavior, um, which included, like, drugs and, like, crazy, crazy shit. Like, uh, so he would throw $100 bills on crowded dance floors just to watch people, like, scramble and fight for them. In other instances, he would urinate on clubgoers or urinate in their drinks and stage falls wherein he knocked others to the ground. Uh, so he was, like, crazy yeah, drugged out. Just- 
fucking yeah. jerk. Um, but as he was getting more and more popular as a club, uh, club promoter, he was, like, getting more and more into the drugs. More and more, like, fucked um, up. And he was arrested a bunch of times, always on, like, drug charges. Never Jeez. anything on violent, right? Mm-hmm. So some of it could be explained by a personality disorder. Some of it could be the drugs. He was later diagnosed with histrionic personality disorder, mm-hmm. um, which... I know a little bit about, but it's it's close to, like, narcissism, where there's just a lot of, like, self-importance and, and delusion kind of stuff. Okay. Um, he said, the doctor said it was the most extreme case he had ever seen. Everything has to be completely over the top and exaggerated. It worked well for my job as a club promoter. So, um, Angel Melendez was a regular at the New York City club The Limelight which was one of the clubs we talked about earlier that was owned by the same guy, Peter Gation. Mm-hmm. And that was he worked there as like a normal job but also was like selling drugs at a bunch of other clubs and um he sold them like on the premises so when it was found out he was fired so he started getting really like paranoid about money because now the only money that he was making was from the drugs mm-hmm. so basically one night there was a big fight about drug money and he was, like, demanding – Melendez was demanding money from Michael Alleg. And Michael Alleg said – so there's – the what exactly happened is murky because Michael Allen and Freeze, the other roommate, they were so fucking high. They were on so many drugs that, Jeez. like, they can't recall clearly what happened. But what what, what happened was – he said that Angel attacked him first, right? Like, he was mm-hmm. attacking him for the money. And while that was happening, um, he Riggs came up to, like, help uh, and hit Melendez with a hammer, mm. which I'm like, that's a horrible way to go. Mm. Um, but then Alec grabbed a pillow and tried to suffocate him. Um, but he didn't fully die. He was just knocked unconscious with the pillow. And the hammer. And the hammer. Right. Like, after being hit <laughs> in the head and then, and like, then being... And then he had a pillow like, on him, yeah. Right, right, right. But he wasn't dead. So Riggs went to go to the other room, and when he came back, he said that Alec um, had poured... Was pouring, like, a cleaner, like, a drain cleaner into Angel's mouth <gasps> and had, like, duct taped it. <gasps> yeah. Which is really horrible. Alec disputes these claims, however, and cites the Drano in the... Uh, there also was, like, a hypodermic needle, needle in the room, and somebody said that maybe he injected him with chemicals, but Alec said that that is, like, a dramatization that was in James St. James' book, that that wasn't, like, a real thing that happened. He says that he killed Melendez in self-defense. So the murder was one thing. So did he pour Drano down his throat? I don't know. Oh, my God. Because of it's not like they could really do an autopsy. Because yeah, the next I know part that. was what happened, like how they disposed of the body. So I was yeah. gonna say the murder was one thing, but then it comes to how they disposed of the body. And after Melinda's death, Alec and Riggs did not know what to do with the body. So they initially left it on ice in the bathtub. So they just left it on ice in the bathtub for a couple days. Again, they're on a lot of drugs. Yeah, so they don't So the ice melts, and then the body is just decomposing in a tub full of water, and it's really smelly, and it's starting to make their apartment smell bad. So after a few days, um, they were trying to discuss what they should do, and they were like, we've got to get rid of the body, we've got to get rid of the body. And Riggs went to Macy's to buy knives and a box. Riggs, also known as Freeze, that's Mm -hmm. the same person. Alec, uh... 
agreed to dismember Melendez's body in exchange for 10 bags of heroin. Oh, my God. I also don't know how big a bag is. I don't know if it's like a grocery bag full of heroin, a Ziploc bag full of heroin, Either a way, garbage bag full of heroin. 10 bags of but heroin. For, he was like, I'll cut up the body for 10 bags of heroin. Oh, my God. So he cut the legs off and put them each in separate garbage bags. He then put them into separate duffel bags and threw them into the Hudson River. The rest of the body was put into the large box that Mr. Riggs had found in the basement of their apartment. Afterwards, he and Riggs threw the box into the Hudson River. In the weeks following Melendez's disappearance, Alec allegedly told, quote, anyone who would listen that he and Riggs had killed Melendez. Most people didn't believe Alec and thought his confession was just a ploy to get attention. So they thought, like, Melinda's has just, like, disappeared and that Alec was, like, I, I killed, killed him. him. Right. Like, because he was just on drugs and, like, wanted people to, like, talk to him and think he was interesting. However, Michael Musto recalls, by the time Alec sent out a party invite joking about a murder, a lot of people wanted to kill him, especially since the source was floating a more premeditated version of the killing. Mm. So someone else said that it wasn't, like, a self-defense. They got an argument that they he had planned. planned to kill him. Oh my but gosh. I'm not really sure why. Mm-hmm. So that was going on, right? In April of 96, uh, Musto reported rumors of Alex's involvement in Melendez's death in the Village Voice. He didn't use any names. He was just giving details of the murder. And he had previously reported on Alex being fired from the limelight. Mm. Uh, Alex was fired because he knew about all the drugs that were being mm. sold in all of Gation's clubs. And um, over the coming weeks, the Village Voice continued to report and make accusations about Melendez's murder. And through September of 96, the police still had not questioned Michael Alec. Uh, they were focused on his business partner, Peter Gation, wanting Alec to testify against him because of all of the drugs being sold in all of his clubs. Wow. They were trying to take down Peter Gation. Yeah. So several months passed. Many people believed Alec would get away with murdering Melendez because nothing was happening until children playing in the water <gasps> pulled a box containing a legless torso mm. from the waters of Oakwood Beach at Millerfield in New Drop. Oh, my God. Those poor kids. Those poor kids. I know. Yeah. James St. James recounted how Melendez's brother was baffled by what he regarded as callous indifference by the police and by the scenesters that Melendez had considered his friends. Because all these people heard Alec talking about having killed him. And they were like, whatever. Whatever. Right. (gasps) Yeah. That's so fucked. So in November 96, the coroner reported that the body had been identified as Andre Angel Melendez. Alec fled New York and in November 96 was located by the police in a motel room rented by his drug dealer boyfriend, Brian, in Toms River, New Jersey. Alec was arrested, as was Riggs. Uh, And that's when they said it was self-defense that that Melendez had attacked Alec and that Riggs was, like, helping him. Mm -hmm. Sure. to, To, like, you know, get out or whatever. Sure, yeah. So ultimately, he wasn't charged with murder. Neither of them were charged with murder. They were charged with manslaughter and given a sentence of 10 to 20 years if Michael Alec would testify against Peter Gation about the clubs. Wow. Yeah. So they knocked that that much time off of his murder charge over all the drug charges because they wanted to take this club owner down. 
Yeah. Wow. While in prison. Well, priorities. <laughs> Alec told a journalist, um, I know why I blabbed. I must have, wa- I must have wanted to stop me. I was spinning out of control. It's like the old saying, what do you have to do to get attention around here? Kill somebody? Oh. Yep. Oh. Yeah. So he was in prison for about 17 years. <laughs> James St. James wrote his book. Uh, it was originally called Disco Bloodbath. Mm. Uh, and and then Disco Bloodbath became a movie, which was Party Monster, Party Monster. and then the book was re-released as Party Monster, like called Party Monster. He also recorded phone calls between himself and Michael Alec while Alec was in prison and was using those to make a blog. Um, but Michael Alec did not know about it. Oh, so uh, of course he was like, whoa, 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 whoa. So, right, when he, and it was called Phone Calls from a Felon. <gasps> and it contained transcripts and phone conversations between Alec and St. James about Alec's experiences in prison. <laughs> After six weeks, Alec put a stop on the phone calls claiming, people think I'm having a grand old time or that I'm trying to exploit my situation, which, whatever. Um, yeah, so, okay. He has since been released from prison. He was paroled in 2014, and for the conditions of his parole, he had to return to New York City. He was required to abide by an 8 p.m. curfew and undergo drug and anger management counseling and job readiness training. In the months following his release, Alec granted numerous interviews in which he expressed a desire to star in his own reality show of and course. stage an exhibition of his artwork. Sure. In May 2014, reports emerged that Alec was attempting to sell his memoirs and was pursuing a career as a magazine writer. In October of 2014, he released a pop song called What's In, featuring DJ Kiyoki. (laughs) The Box. (laughs) Written and produced by Greg Tenus uh, through Austound Music, an Austin, Texas-based record label. And uh, on Thursday, February 2nd, 2017, Alec was arrested for trespassing and smoking crystal meth. Oh, God. In Joyce Kilmer Park in Concourse outside the Bronx Supreme Court at approximately 1.30 a.m. He was detained because the park closes after dusk. The complaint alleges that police found a bag of crystal meth and a pipe with residue from the drug in his jacket pocket. The New York Daily Mail reported that Alec was arraigned on drug possession and trespass charges and pleaded guilty to trespass in exchange for a conditional discharge. Wow. So if you're wondering what he's up to nowadays, smoking um, crystal smoking meth in crystal a park. Meth. Uh, so there's also been, so there's the book that was about it, right? Disco Bloodbath. A Fabulous But True Tale of Murder in Clubland. And then it was re-released as Party Monster after the movie, which came out in 2003. Mm -hmm. There's also a documentary on Netflix called Glory Days. Days is D-A-Z-E. The Life and Times of Michael Alec. That came out last year. There's a a documentary called Limelight about the club uh, that came out in 2011 that he has an interview in. And Michael Alec was casted as Michael in the Spanish New York-based independent director Manuel Tolendo's first and only movie, finished in 98 with the participation of producer <laughs> Elias Cuadrajete, called Shampoo Horns. <laughs> the film portrayed this year's uh, and the club kids' movement quite as fiction and, uh, and quite as documentary. The shooting was done during 96, and Michael Alec was supposed to be acting during his real crime. Wow. Um, so he was in that movie, like, while he was, yeah, you know. Yeah. Telling people about this murder that well, he did. He was like, "Hey, guess what I did? I killed a guy." So that was my that was my gay story. <laughs> <laughs> oh 
But, uh, so I was looking for, so how I came across this other thing that I want to talk about is really funny. So I was looking for gay serial killers, and then Wikipedia suggested a list to me, not of gay serial killers, but of different, um, (laughs) group or couple serial killers. Oh, like serial killers who yeah. would kill, who were like a team yep. that killed multiple people. Yep. And the first thing that popped up, and I was like, okay, I want to know more about this, is the Philadelphia Poison Ring. Have you ever heard of this? No. <laughs> Neither had I, but I was like, this is fascinating. Poison Ring. Yes. All right. So the Philadelphia Poison Ring was a murder for hire gang. Well. <gasps> That was led by Italian immigrant cousins Herman and Paul Petrillo in the 1930s in Philadelphia, where the Italian community, which is huge here in Philly, particularly in South Philly, which is where they lived, uh, where the Italian community had grown from over 76,000 people in 1910 to over 155,000 people by 1930. So, like, more than doubled. And uh, so that was just before the, the murder ring began. Okay. And the ring came to light in 1938. The cousins were ultimately convicted. We'll talk a little bit about that. Um, but the gang members, <laughs> associates and uh, dupes, which is in quotes, many of them Italian-born superstitious women, dubbed poison widows by the excited press, wow. were brought to trial and mostly convicted to death sentences. <gasps> Or varying prison sentences. One or two of them were found not guilty, notably the widow Stella Alfonsi, whose husband's 1938 death by poison is what brought the case to light. Hmm. So there are these two cousins, Herman and Paul Petrillo, mm-hmm. which I, I love that that's their last name because of Sophia Petrillo. Everybody in this case is super Italian, Okay. <laughs> So there are these two cousins, Herman and Paul Petrillo, and Herman was an expert, an expert counterfeiter and an arsonist. And he had a lot of contacts, like, to the criminal world, mm-hmm. while his cousin Paul ran an insurance scam business from the back of his tailor shop. Okay. And aspired to be, uh, a, to, uh like, a paid consultancy in La Fatura, which is, um, a magic, uh, that's believed in by a lot of, like, old, Italians, but especially of the Italians in South Philly at the time. Sure. In the 30s. So the murders began in 1931 with Herman enlisting associate thugs to kill men that he had arranged to insure (gasps) to collect on the insurance. So one of them made fake money, one of them ran insurance scams, and they were like, hey, cuz, why don't we get in this together? Why don't we get in business together? So their whole thing was that they would try and like, Either with the widow's help or not with the widow's help. Uh, well, before they were widows, they were just wives right, the first. Wives. Either with their help or not. Soon to be widows. They would ha- have the wife take out a new insurance policy on their husband. And then they would either they themselves or with the help of the wife would poison the husband for the insurance money. And most of these insurance policies had double indemnity, which means if you die of an accident or if you die, right, for something that's not like you didn't commit suicide, you didn't do something, it's not your own negligence, like Mm -hmm. you didn't make a mistake that caused you to die and not natural causes. Mm -hmm. Everything else is considered accidental death. Car accident, somebody murdered you, somebody killed you, but that person isn't your beneficiary. That's considered an accidental death. Wow, okay. Um, so basically they were, 
they were setting up all these insurance policies on people and then killing those husbands and then they would split the money with the wives. With the wife. <laughs> but it was fake money? Well, no, the fake money they would use for others. They would use, they would get real money from the government based on the, or from, you know, other companies based on the insurance. But he made fake money and they would buy shit with the fake money. Oh, so okay. like, for instance, there's a thing. It I'll was come always to, a profit. Right. Where they were sending somebody to go buy cars for them, but they gave them fake money to buy the cars. So they could use the cars for the business. Okay. So, um, <laughs> so Herman ruthlessly and euphemistically described this as sending them to California. That's what he would call <laughs> when they were poisoning. Somebody. They went they went off to a really nice farm. Right. So two of the victims, Ralph Caruso and Joseph Arena, were drowned and bludgeoned on fishing trips. And a third, John Walshin, was bludgeoned and run over repeatedly by a car. Meanwhile, Herman contrived a steer clear to steer clear of repeated attempts by the authorities to bring him to justice for insurance fraud, arson, and currency counterfeiting. Wow. So like he was already on their radar. Not even for murder, but for everything for else. For all the other stuff, right. Got it. So basically they had started with these murders and then they were like, Well, we can't just keep having these violent deaths because that's gonna attract a lot of attention. We, if we poison people, it can just look like they were sick and they died. <laughs> Uh, so the, this was during the depression, which was getting like worse and worse. So people had yeah. no money. They were destitute. And the Patrillos headed an informal gang, now including Morris Bulber, who, um, they referred to him as Louis the Rabbi. <laughs> okay. <laughs> which his name wasn't Louis, but he was Jewish. Um, so they called him Louis the Rabbi, Morris Bulber, and other self-styled, um, Fatoucheri, which were the people of that, like, crazy, weird religion or whatever, okay. uh, which were wise women and witches, such as uh, Maria Carina Favato. These are all super Italian names. Oh, yeah. Josephine Sedita and Rose Carina. So we have Marina, uh, Maria Carina Favato and Rose Carina, which are two, like, they're not related, who offered superstitious, unhappily married, murderous, or merely gullible women <laughs> incantations, powders, and potions to adjust their lives. Mm-hmm. So they, so these women worked with the insurance people and they gave the potions, quote unquote, to the yeah. wives to give to their husbands. Yeah. Got it, got it, got it. These love potions, etc., were usually arsenic or uh, antimony, and they were invariably accompanied by excessive insurance policies on the victim. Sure. <laughs> Often made out in favor of gang members rather than the supposed poison widow beneficiaries. The gang embraced insurance agents and made highly successful use of the period's widespread cheap insurance policies, often taken out without medical examination, which wasn't required for policies that paid out under $500. Or the knowledge of the principal concerned who would subsequently meet an agonizing death by arsenic engineered by the spouse, possibly with intent, possibly in superstitious ignorance of their actions. Like, some of them knew they were poisoning their husbands, and some of them thought they were giving their husbands some kind of strength juice. Right. (laughs) It was the opposite. Correct. This went on from 1932 until 1938, so for six years. And it only was brought to attention by this one particular murder uh when the death in the hospital of fernando alfonsi who uh it's his widow that i mentioned earlier wasn't found guilty Mm -hmm. 
Uh, Fernando Alfonsi brought matters into the open, something that was bound to happen sooner <laughs> or later as the gang's activities proliferated, because they got around South Philly. I was like, they were probably they probably got to a point where they were kind of cocky about it, right? So uh, Vincent P. McDevitt was an ADA in Philadelphia at the time, and in early 1939, the district attorney Charles Kelly assigned him to the homicide case of Fernando Alfonsi, who had died uh, on October 27th in 1938. McDevitt immediately had information from two undercover detectives. We've got agents Landvoit and Phillips. So we'll talk about them a little later because they're the ones that he gave, that they were trying. They were hoping that they could get him to give them counterfeit money to buy something so that they could bust him for the counterfeit money. So. Okay. Um, so those two are the, like, the undercover agents, Landvoit and Phillips. From them, McDevitt had an informant, one George Meyer, who ran a local upholstery cleaning business. Meyer encountered Herman Petrillo when he was trying to obtain money for the business. Petrillo had offered to provide him with a large sum of money, legal and counterfeit, right. <laughs> some real, some fake, if half Meyer and half. would perform the hit on Alfonsi. Landvoit and Meyer had played along with the murder plot. And Meyer, hoping for an advance payout, Landvoit was hoping to finally buzz Petrillo for his counterfeiting crime. So he was just hoping that he would get the fake money so that he could be like, got you, sucker. <laughs> Working undercover, Landvoit helped Meyer play along as the Petrillos plotted the murder that they wanted Meyer to carry out. The plan was to steal or buy a car, take Alfonsi out to a country road, and hit him with the car. Oh, okay. <laughs> thus making the murder look accidental, right? Yeah. Herman Petrillo preferred the idea to steal the car rather than buy one, but Landvoit and Phillips were really hoping to convince Petrillo to give them the money to buy the car car. because they were the undercover cops and that money they knew would be fake. And that's what they were actually trying to bust him for. And so they were trying to get the the fake money out of him. But in the end, Petrillo sold them some fake tinder, ostensibly buying a means of transportation to the planned crime scene. The play-along plan continued until Meyer, on a whim of curiosity and concern, decided to visit the intended murder victim. (gasps) At the front door of the house where Alfonsi lived, Meyer learned from an old woman who opened the door that Alfonsi was already gravely ill. After notifying Phillips, he returned with Phillips and Landvoit to the Alfonsi house. They found Alfonsi to be bizarrely ill, suffering symptoms of bulging eyes, immobility, and being unable to speak. Arsenic. At their next meeting with Herman Petrillo, after Petrillo handed Phillips an envelope full of counterfeit bills, Phillips asked about the plan to murder Alfonsi. Petrillo replied that there was no reason to worry about it anymore because it has already been handled. Got him. Fernando Alfonsi died after being admitted to the National Stomach Hospital in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. The cause of death was heavy metal poisoning. Mm. The autopsy revealed tremendous arsenic levels. Mm-hmm. The detective, the detectives assigned to the case were Michael Schwartz, Anthony Franchetti, and Samuel Riccardi. So two Italians and another Jewish guy. All right. They instantly thought of the rumors already well-developed of a highly organized arsenic killing spree surging through the city. Indeed, there were distinct patterns. Arsenic killing spree. The victims tended to be Italian immigrants. Hmm. 
Hmm. As Alfonsi was. Weird. And have high levels of arsenic in their bloodstream. Weird. Herman Petrillo and Mrs. Stella Alfonsi were both arrested. Mrs. Alfonsi had purchased a sizable life insurance policy for her husband, an immigrant who could not read English. Huh. He had been unaware of the policy, signing some documents with a cross, while others bearing Alfonsi's signature were ineptly, were ineptly forged by Herman Petrillo. <laughs> The Alfonsi case fitted a rapidly emerging common modus operandi in a lot of other homicide investigations. Most importantly, each case, every single one of them, involved a fresh life insurance policy Hmm. with a double indemnity clause Hmm. and nearly directly led to one of the Petrillo cousins. Hmm. And each cause of death was listed as some sort of violent accident. Ultimately, they were found guilty. Yeah, I I wonder why. uh, Of first-degree murder, and they were executed by the electric chair. Oh, wow. Okay. In 1941. So shit moves quick, because that was just three years later. Seriously, they fried them right up. They sure did. Wow. Um, Wow. And there are others. I don't have the names of the other people, but there are others who were... um, like, sentenced to life in prison or had death penalties for their involvement with the ring. Wow. I want to say all, it was a total of, like, 16 people who were tied to the ring, but the Petrillo cousins were the leaders. They were the, the ring leaders. The ring leaders, yep. Wow. Damn, Philly. And that's the Philadelphia Poison Ring. The uh, PPR. Yeah, the PPR. We all hate the PPAR. A through R. Oh, the PPA. Girl. I know. All right, Lee. All right. Damn. A little fetish five? Do you got a fetish five for us? Yeah. It's a little PPA. It's a little PAP. PAP. It's tied in kind of a little bit to these other two things I've talked about, particularly poison fetish. Party and play, also known as Kim sex. I don't. Which are people that like to do drugs. And then have oh, sex. and then so Kim sex like C H C H E M. Yes, Kim. Interesting. Okay, it's the consumption of drugs to fatil- uh, to facilitate sexual activity. Sociologically, both terms refer to a subculture of recreational drug users who engage in high risk sexual activities under the influence of drugs within groups. The term PNP, um, which the N is picture for and. picture. No, um, no PNP. <laughs> Um, is com- which I'm like, I know about this, is commonly used by gay men, um, which means that, like, they want to, like, they're like, hey, you want to, like, that might be on somebody's grinder profile, that they're into P&P, which means they're into, like, getting together and doing drugs and then having sex. Oh, okay. Um, and other men, okay. uh, so the term P&P is commonly used by gay men and other men who have sex with men in North America, while chem sex is more associated with the gay scene in Europe. Okay. Because I was going to say, I've, I've heard P&P. But I, I but hadn't heard, heard of Kim sex, right, until I looked this up earlier and I was like, oh. I was like, that's what that's what they call it in Europe. Ooh, the drug of choice is typically methamphetamine, <laughs> known as Tina or T, but other drugs are also used, uh, like methadrone, GHB, GBL, and poppers, which poppers, poppers. don't really like mess you up. Poppers mm-hmm. are totally legal. Uh, I did poppers with Greg one time just because I was curious about it. Yeah. Greg. You know, yeah. Not to blow up his spot, sure. but, no. you know, Greg likes to do poppers and have sex. A lot of gay men do. It helps loosen your butthole. 
Yeah, okay. Because it opens up a lot of blood vessels. Yeah. All anyway, right. some studies have found that people participating in such sex parties have a higher probability of acquiring sexually transmitted diseases you by having unprotected say. anal sex with a large number of sexual partners. Uh, for this reason, Kim sex has been described as a public health priority. Uh-oh. The practice is nicknamed party in play, which, like I said, the in mm-hmm. is for and, like party in play. P and P by some participants. Other refer to it as H and H, which is high and horny. <laughs> One academic study calls the practice uh, SDU, which is just sexualized drug use. Okay. Methamphetamine is often used recreationally for its effects as a potent aphrodisiac, euphoriant, and stimulant. It's been further described that an entire subculture known as party and play is based around methamphetamine use. Gay men belonging to this subculture will typically meet up through internet dating sites and have sex. On such sites, men often include notations such as chems or PNP. Since stimulant drugs such as methamphetamine drastically delay the need for sleep, increase sexual arousal, and tend to inhibit ejaculation, PMP sexual encounters continue for many hours. <laughs> methamphetamine taken in excess amounts prescribed or recommended will prolong symptoms of intoxication for up to eight hours. Oh, God. In some cases, these sexual encounters will sometimes occur continuously for several days, <gasps> along with repeated methamphetamine use. That sounds so exhausting. Exhausting. I know. Methamphetamine is used to create euphoria, heighten sexual appetite, and increase sexual stamina. The crash following the use of methamphetamine in this manner Awful. is very often severe with marked hypersomnia. Ugh. So, like, sleeping, like, an insane amount. Ugh. Ketamine is very different from the main chemsex drugs as it's a disassociative hallucinogen that distorts perceptions and creates a sense of detachment. Ketamine is used in chemsex encounters to improve the experience of receptive anal intercourse or fist. A study of sauna participants in Barcelona, Spain in 2016 found that most commonly used drugs in chemsex are GHB, GBL, cocaine, ecstasy, uh, MDMA, poppers, and Viagra. A 2014 study on chemsex in London indicated that the drug associated with chemsex there included uh, mephedrone, GHB, GBL, crystal meth, ketamine, and cocaine. Internet posts by men seeking PNP experiences often resort to slang to identify what drug they're partying with. These drugs tend to inhibit penile erection, a phenomenon known by the slang term crystal penis or pilly willy. Consequently, many men who engage in PMP use erectile dysfunction drugs such as uh, cylindrophil, verdanophil, and telafophil. For some PMP participants, substance use may facilitate a process of cognitive disengagement from the fears and stipulations associated with sex in the time of HIV and AIDS. Popular discourses of disinhibition provide a commonly accepted alibi for activities engaged in when under the influence of substances. The same drug-induced loss of inhibitions makes PMP enthusiasts more vulnerable to more immediate threats, such as robbery, date rape, assault, or murder by someone they meet for sex. Men in the chemsex scene have stated that sexual consent is not clearly defined and there can be perception that anyone at a party and play get-together is assumed to consent. The term party and play and pay has emerged as a warning that partying and playing leads to bareback sex, which increases the chances of contracting HIV and may result in other consequences such as neurological damage and resistance to HIV drugs. Uh. 
the use of crystal amphetamine, of crystal methamphetamine, mephedrone for chemsex are associated with high risk sexual behavior with little regard to consequences, poor ARV adherence for HIV, poor use of condoms, extended episodes of often traumatic sexual pursuits, i.e. fisting, typically lasting two to three days and multiple sex partners. Men who have sex with men in the chemsex scene who inject drugs tend to use clumsy injecting practices and knowledge, which increases the risks of of injection problems. As well, since most chemsex takes place in private home parties, it's hard for public health staff to reach these participants to inform them of safer sex practices as compared to reaching gay men in nightclubs who can be approached by outreach workers. Methamphetamine can cause sores and abrasions in the mouth, which can turn typically low HIV risk sex acts such as oral sex into very high risk sexual activity. So that being said... <laughs> I talk a lot about being safe. And while I won't tell people they can't use drugs, there are smart and safe ways to do things. And I wouldn't advocate for meeting strangers to go have sex and do drugs with. Um, but that's a thing that some people are into. So a uh, little education is always good for everyone. But for me, I would always recommend being safe, be safe. sane, and consensual. And if you're going to do drugs and have sex, do it in your home with somebody who has consented beforehand and make sure you have a, if not a babysitter, some people that are like ready to check on, on your dial, shit. Yeah. <laughs> and make sure that you're okay. Cause don't be safe. Do, I mean, do be safe. Don't yeah. not be safe. Yeah, exactly. Which is a double negative. That means be safe. Uh, yeah. You got it. You know what we're saying. So that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Yay! I am so hungry Me right too. now. I'm like literally, I need to eat something. So that being said, thank you guys so much for listening. Thank you for listening. I hope you we gotta go get some story. food, sir. What do you think of all the things I talked about today? Um, I knew about the Michael Alex story. Um, right. I watched Party Same. Monster as a kid. Same. I did not know about, about the, the Philadelphia PPR. Poison Ring. Isn't that nope. crazy? No idea about the PPR. And there's so many mug shots. Like, oh, because of all the people that were involved, so there's just tons and tons of mug shots. It's like of a all yearbook of mug shots. It's crazy. That's crazy. Well, everybody, thank you so much for thank listening. You guys. As always, if you want to support us, the best way to do that is through our Patreon, a subscription to patreon.com slash deadtime. Time stories. stories with a Z. We have three tiers, $1, $5, and $15, all of which come with really incredible rewards. Of course, there are other ways to support us if you don't have the money, which I don't have the money. That's I fine. Mean, we please, get it. Please, please, please leave us a review on iTunes, on Facebook, on Stitcher, anywhere where it gives you the option to leave a review. Leave a review. And if you screenshot it, and email it to us at deadtimestories, with a Z, all one word, at gmail.com. We'll send you a sticker for free to your house. Yeah, we fucking will. We'll do it. We're into send it. Send it right to you. We'll send it right to you. Done. Like, you're not even ready for it. I know. Follow us on Instagram, deadtimestories, <laughs> all one word. I'm S.C. Kernison, K-E-R-N-I-S-A-N. Sarah is over your headins, H-E-D-D-I-N-S. Facebook, Instagram, all the things. Thank you for listening so much. I'm Stephanie. I'm hungry, Sarah. And this, this has, has been, been Dead Time Stories. Thank you so much for listening. Dead Time Stories is hosted by Sarah Heddens and Stephanie C. Curtison. Music and editing by Eric Gershnow. Artwork by Rennie Slackman. 